Lord, this morning before we engage or continue to engage you um, in the preaching itself and then hearing a word from you, I want to lift up a couple specific things. I want to pray for a church this week that's not local and then also for a local city official. And I want to pray for a little 12-year-old girl. Um, Lord, first, the church in Menard, Texas, um, sort of connected to us through family members. Uh, pastors Dwayne and wife Lynn, uh, the First Baptist Church in Menard. Lord, I want to pray for Dwayne's worship. I just, uh, I know firsthand the challenges of just the week-to-week journey with the people. And I'm heartbroken for him at the difficulties that they're facing. And Lord, I enjoy the reality that you are never snoozing and that you're always at work. And even when things may seem dormant or non-existent or even dead, and when it comes to your people, if the Holy Spirit is involved, there will always be life. Lord, I pray for Dwayne right now and Lynn. pray that they'll be fueled by the thought of gardening, long-term gardening, and that possibly their church that they've been serving for five years is in a really long winter. We pray with Dwayne and Lynn for this little people in Menard that they would be arrested with the truth. I pray for Dwayne even right now as he's preparing to preach that you will use him to enjoy you out loud, to worship as he preaches, to marvel at your greatness. Lord, we trust and know that worship begets worship. We pray that whatever way that you would have us come alongside this church in Menard, that we would be faithful to do so. If it's just prayer, if it's periodically having them in front of us and before you, if it's more than that, I pray that you would give us some insight into that. pray that in this whole thing that Dwayne's marriage with Lynn would actually flourish, that they would put the gospel on display in their marriage, and that it wouldn't suffer as a result of the difficulties in ministry. I would also want to pray for a city official, our city attorney, who is one of us, Brent Money and his family. Lord, a good friend and a brother who shared the table for years now, a small group shepherd, a man who's shepherding his own family, who in many ways is in the fray right now. And um, in many ways, in the very public square, is going through a real time of trial. Lord, I pray that this time, in this time, and through this time, and in this mess, that he would worship. That this would be an opportunity for your glory, an opportunity for his witness and his worship to be the brightest and the most aromatic that it's ever been. So that those who are spectators, those who are um, slanderers, possibly, those who are witnesses to this whole thing, will see where Brent and his family trust, who they trust in, what fuels their lives from day to day, what perspective they have that's vertical over the horizontal. Lord, I pray you'll be glorified in that. Whatever the outcome, I pray that you'll be glorified in and through the money family. Lord, I also want to pray for a little 12-year-old girl, Katie Kendall. 
little girl that in some ways is almost family to us that found out this week she has leukemia. Lord, we pray for robust and speedy and responsive treatment. We're thankful for medical care. Lord, beyond that, we're thankful for you behind the medicine, that whether it's through medicine or whether it's an overnight healing, that you'll be glorified in an outcome where she spends many years worshiping you here with her family. Pray for Rhett and Nancy, and pray for the rest of their family, Lord, that they will seek you and trust you right now as she goes through treatment. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that you will be enjoyed. I pray that the true and awesome nature of Christ will be exposed and savored, that we'll be surprised and comforted all at the same time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2. Let me get there. Give you a little bit of context. I'm going to read chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, just because it's all connected contextually to where we're going to be for the next few weeks. We're going to focus primarily this morning on verse 14 and sort of camp out for the next few weeks in verses 14 through 18. But I'm going to begin in verse 10. Let me tell you, too, before I begin to read, that this letter was written by a pastor to his church, likely in Rome, likely under the time of Nero. This little church was made up of what's called Hellenistic Jews. These Jews were part of what's called the Diaspora. That's a fancy way of saying that they were dispersed through different events in the life of Israel. The Babylonian exile, other times of persecution, where the, the people were dispersed all over the Roman Empire. And this little church is made up of what we would call today Messianic Jews, Christian Jews, Hellenistic, meaning that they were influenced by the Roman Empire and specifically Greek-speaking. This letter is written to these guys in this context in a very difficult time under the heavy hand of Rome and specifically Nero. Chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. He's introducing a thought here that he's going to develop. He's developed in our previous sermons and will be continuing to develop in these future sermons of this solidarity with Christ. He's preaching to people who are in the fray a message of solidarity with Christ. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And here's where we're picking up this morning. Continuing with solidarity, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." 
For surely it's not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, Verse 14 through 18 are really where we're going to spend the next four to five Sundays, I would anticipate. I feel like I need to give just a minute to acknowledging what may be weird for some of you. If you haven't walked with us for a period of time, maybe you're visiting, visiting first of a few times, maybe you're listening online, you're pulling it up right now, or you listen this week, I realize how unnatural digging at this level may seem. I totally get it. But some things you need to understand why we're digging in at this level, especially in the book of Hebrews. First of all, this is a very complex book. The truths that are communicated in in this book have tremendous depth. The book is written to Hellenistic Jews. It's written, written to a context that's not our context. So aside from the depth of what's being communicated... There's also the context that we have to somehow climb into when our background is not Jewish. So we have those things working against us or things that make our work challenging. Also, it's written in Greek. None of us that I know of speaks Greek. So we have language issues to deal with. And we also have the issue to deal with that he goes to many what we would call satellites in the Old Testament. And his reference for the Old Testament is the Greek Old Testament, which is not what we use. So we have all those many complications that make this a very difficult book and should cause us to really take our time and slow down. Something else is the book is written to big people. It's written to big people who need to put on their big boy pants, who are in a seriously difficult and challenging context under Nero's reign. Given all those things, it would be a grave injustice to what's being said and how it's being said and the gravity of what's being said to give you a tidy, easy summary. So we'll take our time and gnaw on it. If you're visiting with us, if you're young in the faith, if you're listening online, you may feel like things are over your head at times, but you need to know that's okay because I promise you won't drown. We won't let you drown. And the real place where you're going to find footing is going to be between Sundays and small groups. Small groups is where we discuss these things. It's where they find purchase. It's where we get our feet under us on truths like we're engaging this morning. Now, back to our sermon. Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 fit together. In Hebrews chapter 1, the Hebrews preacher has developed something very important. He's developed the deity of Christ. Now, many of you have memorized the first chapter, so I want to draw out a few of these things, and you can, many of you can probably think about this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 
He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down as ruler, as redeemer and ruler, having become as, well, I skipped something. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There are these seven lofty, awesome truths about Christ that are presented just in the first paragraph of the first chapter. And then he goes on to say some specific things that aren't true about angels and some specific things that are true about Christ. And this is probably the most profound in verse 8. Of the Son, he being God, says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He is speaking to the Son, and he is identifying him as God. The Hebrews preacher has developed this important truth in chapter 1, and now in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, he develops the flip side. In verse 14 specifically, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then in verse 17, he says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Here's my summary of those two verses, my version incorporating some of these other truths that surround it. Since the brothers, that's us, since the congregation, since the many sons that are brought to glory share in flesh and blood, we have all that in common. You know that. We also have that in common with the Hebrews church. Since we have that in common, flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same shared flesh, and blood. And it was for good purpose. I don't know if there's a verse in our Bible or two verses in our Bible that better communicate the purpose of Christ becoming incarnate, taking on flesh, than this passage. There are three important verbs. The important verb we're going to consider today is partook, and the next two is that he might destroy Satan. It's in the next verse. And then he might deliver his people. Three sweet verbs. He partook of the same things that we wear, flesh and blood, so that he might destroy Satan and that he might deliver his people through death. He had to be made like us in every respect. Now, I want to disassemble this passage a little bit, and I want us to have a clear sense of what's being said here in referring to Christ's solidarity with His people. His relationship with us is so profound, and it goes to such an extent that He even takes on what we wear every day, flesh and blood. The Hebrews preacher makes the important point that He who won the children that he who brings many sons to glory and the one who declares God's name in the congregation was himself likewise flesh and blood, and he's made like us in every respect, every respect. Now, the Greek is interesting here. I won't get into the, the Greek words themselves, but I want to draw out three things that the Hebrews preacher 
draws out that a Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jew would have connected to that we have to connect to. He emphasizes some things in this passage that are sort of lost in translation for us. The first are the two words that we see in our translation, he himself. This is the first of three things that he's emphasizing. This is a redundant use of a pronoun. He himself likewise partook of the very same things. Now, you have to know that this passage could read, he likewise partook of the very same things. It may seem like a small thing for it to say he himself, but it's a use of the pronoun that brings emphasis to the reality that he did it. Here's some other examples that may be familiar to you. I don't want you to turn. I just want you to listen to these. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He himself is our peace. Another example in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then, of course, right there in Hebrews, the last passage that I read this morning, if you were thinking about it, you may not have connected this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. There's an emphasis there that he himself did this. He himself Likewise, took on flesh. Redundant use of the pronoun points out the marvel of who did this. Second way that he emphasizes this is a redundant modifier of the verb partook. The words likewise and then on the other side of partook of the same things mean the same things. He likewise partook, he could have said, of flesh and blood. Or he could have just said he likewise partook. Or he could have said he partook of the same things. But he goes out of his way to say he likewise partook of the very same things, emphasizing the reality that he partook. First of all, there's marvel that he himself did this, and then there's marvel that he partook of flesh and blood. God partook of flesh and blood. Christ is emphasized, and the partook is emphasized just by the structure. Let me develop this word, partook, for you, if I can, for a moment. There's a couple of uses of the word in the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't want you to turn there. I want you to just listen to these uses, because it's going to help us understand what's being said here. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper. And he says this about the Lord's Supper. He says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That's the same word. Later in the chapter, he says, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord's Supper and the table of demons. And then in verse 30 of the same chapter of chapter 10, he says, if I partake with thankfulness... Why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. These uses of the word introduce us and help us understand the idea of what's being communicated here in Hebrews. They help us see this, Christ taking on flesh, like a big fat meal. He ate humanity. Don't you think of it like that? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't eat anything that I don't trust. 
I, you know, there's fear factor guys out there that eat stuff that is kind of testing. Most of us, though, we're going to eat something that we trust. And as we eat it, we are literally taking it in, not beyond just the literal truth there, but we're trusting it. And we're connecting to it fully. This notion of him eating it, of him partaking it, helps us see that there's no dabbling in it. There's no testing humanity, but he's actually literally taking it in hook, line, and sinker. I found one reference that phrased it this way, he had a full share in our flesh and blood. He partook just like you're going to partake of lunch. The third thing that he uses to sort of bring out the emphasis here is in verse 17. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now, earlier, he just said flesh and blood, so you could land there if you didn't have some development. But the fact that he brings in every respect means that not just flesh and blood, but in every, every respect, he became like us. Not just flesh and blood, but every respect. In some ways, he had to become, which is where we're going to go in these next few weeks, he had to become diable. He had to become bleedable. He had to become hurtable. He had to become temptable. He had to become hungry, tired, injured, scarred, scarable. He had to become out of breath hiking up the Mount of Olives. Any of you ever been there? It's a hike. He had to have headaches, backaches. He had to be able to stub his toe. He had to have those daily ouches that we have and those things that are much worse. He had to be sickable. He had to be able to become sick. He likewise partook of everything that we partake of right now. He himself Likewise, and of the same things, partook of our flesh and blood, and he became like us in every respect, and all of that while still being fully God. Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2 go together. You can't embrace one and leave off the other and be true. When I was in seminary, a lot of the classes that I took, I felt gypped, frankly. I felt gypped because I had to go to seminary to hear those things. Systematic theology was one of my favorite classes because I connected some dots in that class that should have been connected in the church. There is the notion in seminaries, you need to realize this, in many seminaries that if churches were doing their jobs, there would be no such thing as seminaries. I often felt gypped sitting in seminary class because I'm hearing things that I would have loved to heard before Ten years ago, been a Christian since I was six and had no understanding of any history of the church, no understanding of how things synthesized and connected together. I'm going to share some insight with you from some of my seminary classes. These things were just touch on in some seminary classes, and I've actually sort of developed them some since then in preparation for this sermon. There are some early church heresies that we're going to call for the next few minutes ditches in regards to the nature of Jesus, fully God, 
and fully man. There are four of them. We're going to look at them sort of three pieces. Two of them sort of fit together, but there are four of them. The first one's called deceticism. Deceticism comes from the word, the Greek word, dekeo, to seem or to appear. This is an early church, and in fact, it's one of the earliest heresies. It comes from the first century while our New Testaments are being written. Deceticism is already finding footing. These people believed that Jesus was an illusion. They were sort of shocked at the notion that a holy God would actually take on sinful flesh, so they couldn't accept the possibility that he became flesh, so they treated him like he was just an illusion. They believed it would have been unworthy for God to take on flesh, and especially unworthy for God to die naked on a cross. These guys would have embraced Hebrews chapter 1, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. They would have embraced that, but where we engage here in chapter 2, verse 14, they would have said, nah, I can't go there. He didn't become like us in every respect. That's an impossibility. This lie was being taught and communicated while our New Testaments were being written. Here's an example of it. 1 John chapter 4, listen to this. 1 John is one of our later books in our Bible, so it allows for the development of this heresy. John speaks to this heresy, and listen to what he says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. John engages this heresy and says, you know what? To deny Christ's humanity is to deny the gospel, and I renounce that teaching. That teaching is from the Antichrist. John thinks getting this right is important. That's the first ditch. That's on one side of the road. Considering Christ is just so divine, he couldn't possibly become flesh. Now, the other ditch on the other side of the road, this is Arianism. This teaching came from a guy named Arius in the 3rd century A.D. He was the bishop of the church of Alexandria. Arius believed that Christ didn't always exist, but that he was created. Now, Arius believed that he was created before the creation of the world, but he would agree to this thought that there was a time when Jesus was not. There was a time when Christ was not. That's what Arius believed. There's another heresy that's sort of connected to this Arianism that's called adoptionism. It's a related teaching that viewed that Jesus lived as an ordinary man until his baptism, and then God adopted Jesus as his son and gave him supernatural powers. Shazam. These folks would have believed Hebrews chapter 2, that he's fully man, but they would have rejected Hebrews chapter 1, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. I'll take Hebrews 2, but I don't like Hebrews 1. 
Well, there's the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD addressed the teachings of Arius, and from this council, our early church fathers developed this statement that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance. The word that's used there is the word homoousios. It means of one substance, not to be confused with what Arius taught, homoousios of similar substance. He is of the very same substance with the Father, and he was made man. If he's made something, he's made man, but he's no critter like the rest of us. A very important statement in the life of our church developed at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Also at that council is where St. Nicholas did the most appropriate thing that I've ever seen him do. The thing that I think he should be famous for, St. Nicholas reached across the table and slapped Arius all up in his face like a chump. Slapped him in the face. He went under, he got disciplined for that. But I love what he did. I'm it wasn't the right thing to do, to go Santa on him, on somebody. That's the term we'll use, going Santa on somebody. Arius was that messed up, and St. Nicholas wasn't buying it. The third thing, or the fourth thing, really, but the third thing we're looking at is the other side of the ditch. We're going back to the other side now, Apollinarianism. These guys believe that Jesus could not have had a human mind but instead he had a divine mind and a human body. These guys, I think, in some ways are an overreaction or an overcorrection to Arianism. These guys would have embraced Hebrews 1, but they would have rejected Hebrews 2, especially verse 17, that he became like us in every respect. It said not every respect because his mind is divine. This was rejected at a later council in the Council of Alexandria in 362 A.D. and then the Council of Constantinople in 382 A.D. The thing I want you to see just through the development of sharing with you those heresies is the realization that the ditches have been there since the outset of this journey. Some people have the notion that if we go back to the earliest thing, we're going to find the truest thing. And that's as wrong as somebody that says if we go to the latest thing, then chronological snobbery says that we're truest because we're latest. And the reality is heresies have abounded from the very beginning. Paul promised the Ephesian elders, he said, not if somebody comes in and twists what I've told you, but when somebody comes in and twists what I told you, don't forget what I told you. He also told the church at Corinth, he said, some people are going to come and preach a different Jesus and a different gospel. We've got to know that it's not difficult for heresies to flourish. Now, I want to share a few things with you of why this matters, why this is worth us taking a single Sunday to consider that Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. First of all, think about the reality that he's sharing this with people in the fray. Now, we have families in the far corners of the field, three families right now. A fourth family is in the process of deploying to hard places, all three of them, very hard places. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment if one of those places or all of those places, let's just make it easy and just say one of those places becomes especially hot. 
Now, they're all pretty dangerous already. But let's imagine that sharing your faith in that context meant that you could die and you could go to prison right now. And let's imagine that some of the family members or some of the team members that's already happening to. And let's say I have an opportunity to get on a plane and go over there and sit with that team. And let's, let's just imagine for a moment if I sit with that team and I begin to develop in them and encourage them with the reality that Christ is fully God and fully man. Just think about that for a minute. Does that seem like the most irrelevant truth in the world at that moment? You're in harm's way. I'm just imagining the thousand-yard stare as somebody's looking at me saying, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, that's important, but that's for a seminary class. We're in the fray. We're in harm's way. How does that help us? I'm thinking about the reality just at face value that these are the goods that the Hebrews preacher delivers to a people who are fearing for their lives. These goods. So even before we massage or consider why, we have to acknowledge that this is what he brings a bunch of people in the fray. That Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. Before we even consider why, we have to consider that this is the salve that he brings for this wound. That is the medicine that he brings for this situation is that Christ is fully God and fully man. Whatever you may think important on this Sunday morning, I'm going to tell you, likely is money, health, marriage, relationships. Those things matter. For someone to dismiss them as nothing is unfair. Every single one of those things matter. But guess what? Compared to what matters to Christ, those things are secondary. What matters most to God, apparently, is that we get and understand that His Son is and was fully God and fully man. Can we just take a moment and just connect to that? And just know it, even if you don't know why it's relevant, to just acknowledge that that's the goods that the Hebrews preacher brings a bunch of people in harm's way whose parents and grandparents likely were martyred by Nero. Secondly, why this matters. It was a truth worth fighting for, a truth worth dying for. Our early church fathers contended for these truths. They matter because the Hebrews preacher brings it to a people in the fray, and they matter also because we stand on shoulders that are bloodied and bruised protecting these truths. This is why I felt betrayed in my early church history class why I felt betrayed in my systematic theology class, because why did I know about these shoulders that I stand on? Why did I not know about St. Nicholas, rightly? Why did I not know about these councils, council after council, Nicaea, Alexandria, Constantinople, that lasted weeks and months identifying ditches and wrangling the church back into the middle of the road? Why do I not know about them? found this interesting. The Arian controversy, remember Arius is the one that basically argued that Jesus was created, that there was a time when he was not. This thing boiled down to an argument over homoousios or homoousios. Is he of the same substance as the Father or similar substance as, as the Father? You know what the difference between homoousios and homoousios is? One iota. 
I mean, literally. The difference is one letter, and it's the Greek letter iota. It may not be Greek. I don't know, Latin. I don't, it doesn't matter. The difference is an iota. And you look at that, and in fact, there were a lot of people during these controversies that are arguing that it didn't make an iota of difference. But it mattered to our early church fathers because that iota was the difference between the gospel and a lie. The difference between the message that Paul gave to the Corinthians and the Ephesians, that God gave Paul, is passed down to us, are the message of the Antichrist. For if he's not of the same nature as the Father, then he's not fully God. And Hebrews 1 is not true, because his throne is not forever and ever, but it actually had a beginning. Maybe if we had a better sense of what was contended for and what was guarded and how it was guarded, then maybe we'd treasure it more. Maybe it might mean more to us knowing what it costs. Maybe iotas would matter to us. You don't have to go Santa on somebody, but you should at least be able to contend for Christ's nature as fully God and fully man. This matters. The next question is, what happens if you don't see him as fully God and fully man? What happens if you don't, or what happens if somebody that you work with that supposedly professes Christ doesn't see him as fully God and fully man? Well, if you're like the Arians, you'll see him as more human than divine. You'll see him as created. You'll see him as having a being or beginning. You'll see him as homo oiseos, not homo oiseos with the Father. You will agree that there was a time that he was not. You will have to have dismissed Hebrews chapter 1. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But then the reality is here's where you'll land. The Trinity isn't truly one. For if Christ was created, then that would imply that there was a time when God was incomplete. And that doesn't sound very much like a God to me. You would have to imply that he was somehow incomplete, that he's not the same yesterday, today, and forever, like he says later in this book in Hebrews chapter 13. Or if you come at the nature of Christ like the adoptionists, that just see him as someone that God climbed into or that someone God adopted and gave supernatural Shazam powers, then here's the reality. I want to be gentle here, but I, I don't really know how else I can say this. If you land there, you're just a mess because you're going to deal with some difficult problems in figuring out how in the world am I supposed to then worship this critter? Even though he has supernatural powers, how is God going to be okay with me worshiping him, knowing that he was created? You have a mess on your hands if you land there. If you land at the place of the Decetists, who see him as an illusion or a figment. First of all, let me tell you this. We could do with a little marvel and shock that the Decetists shared over the notion of the divine taking on flesh. We could do with the marvel and shock of it, but not land in the same place. But here's what's in store if you're a Decetus. If he didn't really shed real blood, if he didn't step out of a tomb on real feet with real toenails, 
if he didn't ascend to the Father's right hand with a real human body, then our salvation is just a figment. Our salvation is just an illusion. And we might as well go home. We should get real and just pack up and go home. If he's a figment, then all of this is just an illusion like magic. Or if you're like an Apollinarian, to see him with a divine mind but a human body, here's the bad news for the Apollinarian. If Christ wasn't quite human, then our redemption isn't quite complete. If all he was was human flesh and blood, but he had a divine mind, you're somehow implying the reality or the thought that your mind doesn't need redemption, that your mind doesn't need a Savior. My mind does. (laughs) Bad news for the Apollinarian, your salvation is just halvesies. That's a bummer. I need a Savior that comes and is like us in every respect. Every respect. Flesh and blood, mind. There are ditches on either side of the truth with serious consequences of slipping off one side or the other. Santa's waiting in one ditch to slap you upside your head. And I will make a commitment to lovingly wait in the other ditch for you. I won't slap you. But I will go to Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 and show you the two sweet realities of him being fully God and fully man. Now, here's where things get real personal. So far, you may be thinking, yeah, this is kind of a nifty seminary class that I never got, didn't have to pay for, it's cool. What's behind these heresies is one of the earliest heresies of the church. It's called Gnosticism. You've heard me talk about it before if you've been here for any period of time. Gnostics believed in the separation of the physical from the spiritual. For them, faith is a spiritual thing, and the physical didn't really matter, or at least it wasn't as important as spiritual faith. Think about it just for a minute, and I hope that in some ways sounds a little bit familiar. To separate the spiritual from the physical is in some ways to separate Hebrews 1 from Hebrews 2. To separate the divinity of Christ from the physical humanity of Christ. What's behind every single one of these views is Gnosticism. And here's the shocking reality for us in 2012, and this is why it wasn't settled in 300-something A.D. Because Gnosticism still rears its ugly head. Now, it may not be called Gnosticism, but you can functionally land in the same place when you separate your spiritual faith, and I put quotation marks around it because this is not real faith. When you separate your spiritual faith from your physical walk, you're going Gnostic. You're in a ditch and you don't even know it. I don't know if there's a greater threat to faith in Greenville, Texas in 2012 than Gnosticism. It's what I've observed in myself and it's what I've observed in you. Where we separate the spiritual from the physical. We do what these guys were guilty of, separate Hebrews chapter 1 
from Hebrews chapter 2. You might in your head and heart love Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom, yet with your mouth and your body and your hands and your feet, do nothing to further it. See how we can all be guilty of this? You see how we can all, this thing functionally can play out as us being a bunch of Gnostics? Here's another example. You could say that you love Jesus and you love the gospel, yet when it comes to tithes and offerings, are your time, that's mine. That's not for God. It's the adhering to some sort of spiritual thing, yet not walking in the physical expression of it. Another example, when a man and woman are dating and they fall in love and they're like, man, we're meant for each other and it would be a lot cheaper if we moved in together. Let's play married. But yet we love Jesus. Separating the spiritual from the physical Those are not supposed to be separated. That disconnect is Gnostic, and you can be the product of standing on the wrong doggone shoulders. Any of us can be guilty of this, and all of us are guilty of this at times. Another example is to go so far as to separate the invisible church from the visible You love the notion of the eternal bride of Christ, but you've got no patience or use for and won't go the distance with the physical bride in your local body. That's Gnostic. I love the notion of the gospel. I love Jesus. I'm looking forward to singing at the marriage supper of the Lamb as the groom enters in, but I got no use for people with B.O. People that say things that are inappropriate at times or the people that don't say things. People that don't come around and shake my hand and pat me on the back when I'm feeling low are people that are pestering me all the time and want to pat me on the back and shake my hand. I don't want to go the distance with people who want to be accountable to me and hold me accountable in my journey. But I like the notion of the bride. That's Gnostic. It's separating the spiritual from the physical. James wrote a whole book dealing with this. You can't separate the two. It'd be like separating the spirituality and the divinity of Christ from His humanity. You see how the understanding of Jesus plays into all of it? How could you think your view of the nature of Christ isn't relevant? I want to offer this to you. This thing that we're doing on March 25th, this membership renewal... This is an effort to connect the spiritual with the physical. The notional with the real. It's an effort for us as a people to re-engage each other once a year and say this commitment that we made to God and each other, we want to have an expression. And sure, we're going to fail in it. But we want it to have an expression. We want it to have a show. It's an appropriate reflection of the nature of Christ as fully God and fully man. This is foundational and it makes all the difference as to how you view the world. Think about the reality. He's sharing this with people in the fray in Rome. 
If you've been kind of wondering all along this morning, why would he sit down and share these sort of things with people that are in the fray? Well, the problem with the Hebrews church is they're in the fray, they're in danger. Mom and grandma have become human torches in Nero's garden. And they're like, oh, let's go spiritual because the physical's not working out. It's hard. I don't mean to belittle that. Imagining if my parents or grandparents had been martyred for their faith, that I might have a tendency to go, Besetus, let's just kind of keep this thing spiritual between me and God because the physical is dangerous. He's writing to them, say, no, you guys have to get out from behind that locked door. You have to engage the Hebrew context. You have to engage Rome. You can't go spiritual eliminating the physical aspect of your journey just because it's dangerous. And here's why. Because Jesus was both spiritual and divine, and he was human, flesh and blood. And oh, by the way, he suffered too. This is the goods. This isn't just the goods for the Hebrew context. It's the goods for us. Those things are connected. They have to be. The last question, what happens if you believe that he was and is fully God and fully man? Well, you believe what the inspired Hebrews preacher believes, chapters 1 and chapter 2. You believe what he believed. You believe what he wanted the believers in that little church to pay close attention to in verse 1. You believe what he called in verse 3, the great salvation. So if you believe that he's fully God and fully man, you're believing rightly with the Hebrews preacher. You're also believing with our faithful early church fathers who contended for the truth and were willing to die over an iota and what it meant. You believe with those who wrestled with heresies and wrangled those they loved to the middle of the road. You have some shoulders worth standing on if you believe rightly. Your true belief about Christ will inform true and robust belief about faith. And the physical and the spiritual are intertwined. Sunday morning is intertwined with Wednesday and Thursday. This room and what happens here is intertwined and connected with your den and your living room. They are connected and inseparable if they are faith. Inseparable. As you can't separate His divinity from His Humanity. What you believe in one part, if true, will show up in the other part. We as a church have to get it right that Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. I assume nothing with myself or with you because this reality has a show. It shows up. It's essential. Now, We're going to transition to the Lord's Supper, and it's connected to this reality. I'm going to share a series of passages with you that will be sort of our context for our meal, for our partaking. 
I want to show you by these passages, show you that not only did Jesus take on human flesh and blood and became like us in every respect, but that he's still human. That he hadn't lost his humanity now that he's gone to the Father's right hand. Listen to these passages. John chapter 20. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, this is Thomas, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your hand here and see my hands. See my human hands. Put out your hand and place it in my human side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Luke chapter 24 After his resurrection, he reveals himself again. He says, see my hands and my feet. That is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. A verse later. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He wants his guys to see this. He wants his guys to see his humanity. He showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and he ate it like humans do. After he's ascended to the Father's right hand in Acts chapter 1, it says this, Two men, they're sitting here marveling at him. And he's just ascended and they're looking up and their mouths are ajar. You know, they're looking up. And all of a sudden, two men in white robes appear and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? I bet they're thinking, with your mouths all ajar. <laughs> why are you standing there looking up? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's, just, that's not just talking about the mode of transportation. It's talking about in his flesh. He's going to show up again in human form because that's how he's sitting at the Father's right hand right now with glorified, resurrected flesh and blood. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned, Stephen had a view into the throne room, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. This phrase, Son of Man, is about as human as it gets. I see the human, the God-man, standing at the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 9, when he reveals himself to Paul, Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Jesus. Eternally. Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth? Yes, Jesus. That same Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then the last one, 
where you see it all together. Hebrews 1 and 2 together. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. Here's Hebrews chapter 2. John has a vision into the throne room. He has a vision of Christ. It says, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. There it is again. One like a son of man who's still very human, who likewise took on flesh and blood, the same things that we take on. Yet, here's Hebrews chapter 1. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze as opposed to ours made of clay. He's refined in a furnace. His feet and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and this face was his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That's good, isn't it? That's good. I like seeing them both together right there. His humanity and His divinity. What I would like for us to do as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, as I want us to enjoy this Jesus, fully God and fully man, enjoy Him rightly, partaking of Him. Remember the picture of partaking? As He partook, He Himself partook. Likewise, of our flesh and blood. Let's share the supper together. I'd be real appropriate for us this morning to read what our early church fathers nailed as we take the bread together. Consider the godness of Jesus. Iota is worth fighting for. God of God, light of light. Very God of very God, begotten, but not made. Being of one substance with the Father. Let's take and partake. He was no illusion. There was a real baby in Bethlehem. Real cries. A real boy that grew up in Nazareth. The real Jesus that called ordinary jokers, in fact, the least likely, the foolish things that confound the wise. A real man healed. A real man shot straight with the Pharisees. A real man cried real tears at Lazarus' tomb. And a real man said, Lazarus, come forth. And a real man, fully God, but yet fully man, submitted to wooden nails for you and me. Let's partake of Him, fully God and fully man. Let me pray. God, it's such a lofty and important truth that we've engaged this morning. Lord, I hope and pray... that your heart is glad 
as you've considered this little people on an ordinary Sunday in March in 2012 that have just sat down patiently this morning and engaged the real and true nature of your Son. Lord, I pray that it's something that, first of all, pleases you, that it's in a sweet aroma to you. And secondly, Lord, I pray as a product of that good pleasure for you is that it is a transforming reality for us. It would be like you to take something that's lofty and seemingly irrelevant and to change people's hearts by it. Lord, I pray that it would be something that helps us see a connection between the spiritual and the physical. Thankful for our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.